you would turn with me tonight in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter writing to people whom he identifies as exiles, elect exiles, uh, God's people in the world, but aliens in this world, and um, people who are struggling, facing uh, some oppression and persecution, and yet uh, he reminds them of their wonderful identity as those chosen by God, and, um, and then they're calling to suffer, even to suffer injustice. So last Sunday evening, we looked at verses 18 through 25. Uh, since we were having the Lord's Supper last Sunday night, and I thought that would be more appropriate. Tonight we're going to uh, jump back a little and look at verses 13 through 17. So let's pick it up, uh, but I'll, uh, we'll pick it up at verse 13. We'll read to the end of the chapter. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. <clears throat> Let's ask the Lord to bless. Oh God in heaven, this is your word inspired by the Spirit of God, and Peter penned these words for us, the church, and I pray that we would be trained by these words, uh, Lord, that our minds, our hearts, our affections would be, uh, Lord, um, just molded by the truths that we have here, that uh, we are called for the Lord's sake to subject ourselves uh, to our governing authorities. So Lord, bless us as we study this together. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of my, of my message is a Submission in the Real World. Um, Peter re- deals here with something that might seem somewhat um, removed from our yeah, day-to-day life. If you're, if you're here tonight wrestling with some very particular trouble or trial, uh, this text might not seem to have a lot to say to you. I would, I would just suggest to you that um, the Lord might have more than, more than you would think, as uh, Peter's writing to people just like us, people who live in the real world, uh, people who are living in uh, the Roman emperor, in the Roman Empire, uh, people who have Nero as their uh, emperor, and um, from what, if you remember your, your uh, history lessons from high school or college, wherever you might, uh, might have had that, 
Uh, Nero was not a uh, commendable uh, sort of person. And, uh, and yet, it's, it's interesting, in the New Testament, uh, as the apostles uh, engage in the world of their day, they have these very strong commands to the, the church regarding how to relate to um, the rulers that God had placed over them. It's an important message for us because as Christians in America today, we are being forced to rethink our relationship with the government. We're being uh, sort of forced to readjust our understanding of what this relationship with our rulers is like. In the past, uh, Christians, evangelical Christians particularly, um, our, our, our relationship with the government was, was fairly intimate. Many, many uh, Christians believed that America was fundamentally a Christian nation and felt very comfortable blending their religion and civic identities. So you were an American and you were a Christian, and those two things blended quite easily. Many, many churches, if you, maybe when you were growing up, would have um, American flags up on the, on the, uh, on the, on the stage here. And that was, you'd have an American flag on one side and maybe the, a Christian flag of some sort on the other side. Uh, that was just normal way of thinking about who you were. You were an American, you were a Christian, those two went very closely together. And back in the, uh, the 80s, if, for those of you who um, were, were uh, you know, aware and thinking and participating as citizens back then, there was a, there was a real movement to take back America, uh, a great confidence that or a sense, let me say it this way, a sense that we were losing our hold on the nation and that we needed to exercise our moral majority, if you remember that movement, to, um, to reestablish our influence in the nation. And if we would just get the right judges on the benches, if we'd get the right politicians in the right offices, if we would sort of... Um, um, use the influence that we had as evangelical Christians, if we would exercise our influence, we could um, turn the nation. We could sort of reclaim the nation. And so evangelicals and um, politicians became very, very close, um, particularly to the right wing. Uh, other more uh, mainline churches, liberal churches, were very close to the, the left wing, the democratic wing of, of government. But the relationships, relationships are very close. Uh, that, um, so that evangelical pastors were getting invited to national prayer breakfast and even into the White House. They were, these were heady times. Well, um, that intimate and by and large uh, collaborative relationship and in some sense very friendly relationship, uh, that's really, really been shaken in the last years. Uh, evangelical Christians are increasingly being labeled as regressive uh, intolerant, homophobic, a menace to the new social order, that, that Christians really are in the way of where we need to go as a nation. Uh, the federal government has become active in promoting and enforcing policies that militate against um, believers on, on a variety of fronts, whether it means uh, bringing charges against a Christian couple because they will not bake a, a cake for a homosexual uh, marriage, or seeking to force companies to provide insurance, not just companies, but, but Christian colleges to provide um, coverage for abortions. Uh, there, are, there are a variety of things that you could list where you could say that the, that the, the government, uh, federal government, is, is not friendly as maybe it once had been. There's a there, there are increasing ways in which the, the government is now becoming uh, in, intentionally seeking to strong arm uh, the Christian community and to bring 
the Christian community in line with what is considered politically correct. <clears throat> so those are, these are frightening times for Christians. And if you don't think so, just um, get on Facebook and um, sort of pay attention to the, the political things that are, that are said by Christians and, and what people like and what people post and what people forward and some of the blogs, the political uh, blogs. And you'll find there's a lot of frightened Christians out there. Uh, people who have a, um, a sense of deep unease that, that things are changing. The nation is, in a sense, it's, it's being lost, and, and we're coming under, uh, we're, we're moving into a different era, <clears throat> a different relationship uh, in, in uh, regards to our governing authorities. Just want to remind you, of course, that, that what we're starting to experience is what many Christians throughout the history of the church would consider very normal and very mild. Right? We have brothers and sisters who, just having um, supper a few weeks ago with brothers and sisters from China, and realizing that uh, they would love to have the problems that we have uh, here in America in terms of um, their relationship with the, the government. That we have uh, Christians all throughout the world who are suffering to one degree or another, and what we are entering into is, is what normal Christianity has looked like for many people throughout the history of the church. So the question that we're, that we're addressing in tonight is, is how should believers live vis-a-vis -vis the world and the authorities that are in the world? How do we live um, as citizens of the world and yet our true citizenship is in heaven? And, and how do we do this for the glory of God? That's the fundamental question that Peter is, is asking. Uh, his, the instructions we have here are applications of what Peter's been talking about um, he's been talking about how our identity is that we're children of God, our identity is that we're a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, and our mission is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. And uh, last week we started talking a little bit about what does that look like. Oftentimes the church has uh, assumed that living uh, in the world for the glory of God is is primarily a matter of private morality. So the church will make rules about uh, what, uh, you know, can you wear makeup or what sort of uh, clothing you ought to wear. Um, back in 1924, the Christian Reformed Church, uh, in their, their synod, passed um, uh, sort of a, a policy that um, young people should not go to movies, should not uh, drink, dance, um, they could smoke, I'm, I'm sure of that, but there were, there were a variety of other things that you just were not allowed to do, and that, that was going to be our way of communicating to the world that we were a distinct people. Well, it, it's interesting that when Peter talks about how to live publicly for the glory of God, he doesn't talk about private morality, that the, 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 um, the life that invites questions about your hope, which Peter's going to talk about, that we're living in such a way that people say, what are you doing? What, what, what motivates you? The life that drives that isn't going to be first or maybe primarily, I should say, about whether you mow your lawn on Sunday or, or, or what you, your, your, your private, uh, whether you watch TV maybe or not. But Peter goes to public humility because that is going to raise eyebrows. That's going to confuse people. Particularly, you see, when the churches under oppression, particularly when the church is persecuted. It, doesn't, it won't make sense to the world when persecuted people uh, pray for Nero. That will be strange. 
There won't be, there won't be uh, any categories that the world has for uh, why would you do that? That will invite questions. So Peter, knowing the church is, um, is going to experience persecution, Jesus had promised that it would. He calls us here then to, to live in the world and uh, in subjection to governors, in subjection to rulers. It's interesting, I've been reading a book by Greg Forster. I would just recommend it to you. It's called The Contested Public Square. Great book about the church's relationship to, the, to, uh, to governments throughout history. And it just makes the great point that the church's relationship and its understanding of, of politics has always been rooted in uh, its persecuted history. That the, church's, the church right from the beginning was a target for the state and was persecuted by the state. And yet the church from the very beginning obeying Christ determined that persecution was not a reason to revolt. That, but instead persecution was an opportunity to live in a way that invited questions. And so we're going to be looking at what that lifestyle then looks like tonight. The command... Peter gives it here in verse 13 and 14. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor, yes, even that guy, uh, as supreme, or to the governor sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. There's a tendency in, in our uh, history, our culture, to, to let those words sort of slide off our back. Part of our, uh, our heritage as a nation, as people, is this native resistance to authority. Um, we believe in individual rights, we believe in freedom, we believe in limited governments, we believe in constitutional law, and we believe in the right to protest vehemently when the government oversteps its bounds. Uh, we believe don't tread on me if not found in the Bible is, is not a bad summary maybe of, of some teachings that you could gather there. We like those ideas. Well, um, I'm not going to get it tonight into... Uh, Concerning our rights as citizens, we do have certain rights as citizens that Peter and uh, this original audience do not have. But what I want to point out tonight is that Peter isn't really, he's not concerned about your rights as a citizen. Peter's nearly as interested or concerned about your uh, constitutional rights as he is about your gospel witness. You see, Peter understands that no matter what country you live in, no matter what form of government you, uh, you participate in, you are a servant of King Jesus. He is Lord. And your primary citizenship then is eternal. It's heavenly. That's, so your primary responsibility then and mine, though we are citizens of this land, our primary citizenship is heavenly. Our primary responsibility is to King Jesus to pursue the agendas of His kingdom, his priorities. Jesus gets first place. So Peter's going to talk to us about what that looks like. One of the um, books that I, well, another book I'd recommend if you're interested is uh, David Mandrunen has written a helpful book called Living in God's Two Kingdoms. We've been reading that together in our uh, little Bavink study group. Um, if you would, and he points out that our stance in the world could be likened to Israel's stance uh, when they were kicked out of the land of promise and they went into captivity in Babylon. If you turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29. It's 
very interesting. God has um, expelled the people from the land just like he expelled Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden because of their sin. Uh, His people have sinned. They're removed from the Garden of God, from the Promised Land, and they go east again, and they end up in Babylon. And Jeremiah comes with this message. Jeremiah 29, look at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So here you have God's people, aliens in the truest sense of the world of the word. Uh, in, they don't belong in, in Babylon. They're not citizens of Babylon, though they are inhabitants of Babylon. Their native home, obviously, is the promised land. So how should they live in Babylon for the glory of God? Well, Jeremiah says, build houses, plant gardens, pick the cucumbers, get married, have babies, uh, have your kids get married and have babies. Don't decrease. So don't um, say, you know, this world is such a rotten place. I can't imagine bringing children into a world like this. We're just going to uh, not go there. I hear people say that all the time. Uh, God says, no, 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 no. Have babies and pray for the welfare of Babylon because in its welfare, you'll, you'll find your welfare. Notice that they're not called to transform Babylon. Babylon. They're not called to make Babylon into the land of promise. It's a pagan city and its days are numbered. In 70 years, it's going to be destroyed. Cyrus is going to come and sack it. But while they're in this city whose days are numbered, they're to pray and they're to live their life for the glory of God in a very normal, natural way. Well, that's, that is a really good picture of how Peter sees the church in the world uh, as he's writing. They're, they're citizens there, but they don't, they don't fundamentally belong there. They're, they're elect exiles. They've been, um, they, they don't belong. They're aliens in the world. But they have a calling to live in the world as good citizens. You'll find this in in, uh, Paul's letters as well. 1 Timothy 2. Paul says, first of all then, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. It's exa- he could have been writing that to the people in Babylon. Pray for the king that we might lead peaceful and quiet lives. See, Peter is just arguing for that, that way of thinking. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to the governors sent by him. Now, the question that we can ask is, does that subjection have any limits to it? And the answer, of course, is yes, it does. When the... Uh, government, it's interesting when you find the Bible writers speaking of the government, they're always reminding the government of why it exists. 
It's been ordained by God, but it's been ordained by God to do good things, to resist, to punish evildoers, and to reward those who do well. When the government, um, there are times where we are not required to submit to the government. It's not when the government is just behaving badly. Peter's writing to people who are going to be experiencing the government punishing the, right, punishing the wrong people, punishing people who do good, the Christians, and letting go free the people who do evil. But there are times, there are limits. Uh, if you think about uh, way back in the book of Exodus when Pharaoh gives the command to the Hebrew midwives to kill all the Hebrew babies, what do they do? They say, no, we're not doing that. The book of Daniel, you have great examples. So Daniel in Babylonian exile. And the command comes down that we're going to build this big image and, uh, of the king. And on a certain day, uh, everybody is required to come and bow down and worship. And they say, no, we're not going to do that. And, and Nebuchadnezzar is furious. If, if you won't bow down, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And they said, oh, king, have at it. Our God is able to protect us. And if he doesn't, no. We're not going to bow down. God is able to deliver us, uh, but if we won't, we're still going to worship him and worship him alone. You have the same thing, Daniel 6, right, where the law comes now. Uh, you can't pray to anyone except uh, to the king for 30 days. And Daniel, you read in Daniel chapter 6, he gets, the, he gets the message. He goes up at the same appointed time of day, opens the window to the east, and he prays to his God. He's not going to obey. Why? Because you see, God is our ultimate ruler and king. And when the government says that you have to violate the, the law of God, you don't do that. So when Hitler um, requires citizens to uh, help him hunt and kill Jews, Christians said, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to participate in that evil program. We're going to resist, we're going to disobey the government because we cannot do what God forbids us from doing. God is our ultimate king. And, um, and, and so there are limits, but that's not where we are right now. That's not where we exist. We're, we're, and that's not where even the people of Peter's day lived. They were not being asked to do things that were contrary to the law of God. Peter is writing to them. They are being persecuted, and they're going to be persecuted more. And, and Nero is, is is a vile, wicked, evil man, and yet Peter has the audacity to say, submit to him. Submit to him. Why? Well, first of all, uh, for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. God has a, God is up to something. God uh, has a mission in mind. And you find the mission in um, verse um, 15. This is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So God says, do it for me. You're not doing it for Nero, ultimately. You're doing it for me. But you, the, the goal is to muzzle foolish people. The, the, the word is literally to gag people. It's like a, a, you'd put a muzzle on a dog to, so he can't bark. Muzzle foolish talk. Well, what, what's, what's Peter talking about? Well... Um, people in Peter's day were saying all kinds of crazy things, foolish, ignorant things about God and about this new sect. Uh, Christians were accused of being atheists 
because they wouldn't worship the emperor or the pagan uh, in the pagan temples. Uh, they were accused of being political insurrectionists because they wouldn't acknowledge Caesar as God or venerate him. A rumor had it that uh, Christians were cannibalistic because they would have these secret meetings where they would they would eat the body and drink the blood of of Christ. Uh, they were accused of being incestuous because they called each other brothers and sisters, and then they would intermarry with, with brothers and sisters. You see, so the, the church is accused of all sorts of these foolish, ignorant things. And that still goes on today, where believers are accused of being opposed to science, where anyone who knows the history of science realizes that Christians have been right in the, in the midst of it, and that Christianity, in a sense, is what gave... Uh, occasion for the study of God's creation, uh, that Christians are opposed to personal liberties because they don't want babies, uh, women to, to murder their babies, uh, that Christians are blind to needs in this world, uh, that Christians are an impediment to a, a healthy, flourishing, modern, progressive, humanistic society. Uh, we're accused of believing in a hateful God, a wicked God, a God who claims to be all-powerful, claims to be all-good, and yet allows horrible things to happen to people, allows innocent masses in the world to die from diseases or natural disasters. Maybe uh, you saw the little clip I showed in a, in a Sunday school class once of Christopher Fry being asked by an interviewer on um, BBC. Um, he's an atheist. Uh, what, would you, what would you say if there were a God and you were to meet him, and, and what would you say to him when you die? And Christopher Fry, of course, says, well, I don't, I don't believe there's such a thing, but, but, but if, you know, just to humor you, if, if it were to happen, you did, I, I would say to him, how dare you? How dare you make a world like this? How dare you make the diseases that are here, and you're all powerful, and, and, you're, and, you, and you, you, could, you could change it all, and you do nothing. Well... See, utter willing ignorance and folly. How do you muzzle? How do you muzzle the foolishness in the world concerning God and his church? Well, Peter says you live a life that just puts it all to a lie. You put the folly to a lie. Live in a way that people can't accuse you of, uh, that no matter when they accuse you, the, the, the reality of your life um, gives, just, just gives a lie to what's being said. But Peter, notice, says, live as free people. I love this, verse 16. Live as people who are free. You're not, you're not, you're not words of the state. Greg Forster makes the point in his book that the Christianity is unlike any other religion in that Christianity claims to follow a resurrected man. Every other religion, their leader, if they have one, is in a grave someplace, not Christianity. And Christianity, therefore, um, has this implicit understanding about its, its stance in the world, and that is that, that the ultimate power in the world is not the state. And the, the most important institution in the world is not government. That the church is the most important institution and the most powerful institution in the world because it is eternal. And because its head is King Jesus. And therefore, you, you know, you, you look through your New Testament, why isn't there more data here? Why isn't there more instruction here about how to order a society, how to organize a government? I mean, it'd be great if we, if we could just say, well, the Bible says this is how you go about it. Why doesn't it do it? Well, because this world is passing away. So all the material is, is dedicated to how do, 
how is Jesus building his church, this eternal temple of God that will never, ever pass away as, as we will uh, enter into one day a new heaven and a new earth? And so the church has a different stance than any other religion does. We can live as people who are free, truly free, uh, because we are citizens of, of heaven. So free from fear, um, free from uh, submitting to the categories of this world. When people say foolish things, you could just smile. You don't have to, we don't have to fight for our rights. We don't have to live up to their standards. Like what Peter says in 3.14, have no fear of them nor be troubled. That is a good word for us as we are in a, uh, a, a, yeah, a political season that uh, there are a lot of temptations to be troubled, where you see what's taking place in the candidates uh, that we have, and, uh, and, and it's so easy for me particularly to just let my mind run in un unhelpful directions um, and to be troubled. What's going to happen? Well, Peter says, don't be troubled. Don't, don't be afraid. Uh, live as free people. And don't use your freedom to cover up sin. Don't exercise your freedom uh, in Christ. And I would say don't exercise your freedom as a citizen to do things that dishonor the name of the Lord. We're sinners saved by grace. We, we strive to live for King Jesus. And so Peter gives very basic rules here. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Just notice how Peter's like, this is not, it's not real difficult. It's comprehensive, but it's not difficult to understand. It might be difficult to do because, because when we see things happening in our nation and we love our country and we, we, we sense it's been blessed by God in, in, in wonderful ways, and when, when you sense that being challenged or it's sort of torn apart, uh, that, could be, that could be concerning, deeply concerning. But, but Peter calls us back to, okay, let's, let's live this week, honor everyone. That means both high and low. Don't show favoritism to the wealthy. Don't despise people who disagree with you. Even, right, people who disagree fundamentally with you on political issues. Honor the poor. Honor those who don't have position. Be nice to the lady at the checkout line. Uh, be watchful for people who are in genuine need. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Love the church of Jesus Christ. Really love them. And visit the sick and the elderly. Care for the people who are in need. Comfort those who are grieving. Love each other starting right at home. Love each other. Fear God. Acknowledge He is God. Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. No matter if the mountains go crashing into the sea, God is there. He's in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. The God of Jacob is our refuge. We're going to be okay. And honor the emperor. Yeah, Nero. Foolish, wicked, despicable Nero. Don't reverence him. Don't worship him. Don't fear him. Simply give him the honor that is due according to his office. He's been established by God and God will be his judge. Well, this applies to us today. It's going to apply to us as we move forward and in, um, in our nation. It applies to what you post and what you like on Facebook. It applies to your conversations. Honor President Obama. You're free to disagree with his policies. You're free to speak your mind and vote your conscience, but you're not free to dishonor the man that God has established as the head of this nation. And that's going to be true if, 
if any of the other candidates that we're looking at, if you're just very discouraged. The Bible stands, and we're free, trusting the Lord. We're free for the Lord's sake to live in a world where people are losing their mind and losing their confidence and, and, and losing their comfort and, and their security and panicking. We're free to stand in this world, trusting the Lord and honoring emperors. Friends, persecution might be coming. Chaos might be coming. But we have a call here. To this we've been called. Whatever trials and suffering that's ahead, it does not absolve our calling to honor the Lord and be subject to our rulers. But I'd like to wrap, just finish this up tonight with this wonderful, um, just we need to connect it again to verses 18 and following because this is going to be real. We're, you know, I'm no prophet, I'm not a prophet's son, but the, it's, it's very possible that we're in for difficult times. Um, that's okay. I, I, I was having, I was, um, I've not always been of this persuasion, or I, I waver on that persuasion. I just, maybe a week or two ago, I was uh, talking to um, our intern, Wayne Beanstra, um, shaking my head at what's going on in the, uh, 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 I can't, the primaries. And um, I just said, you know, ultimately, this, this cannot have a good end. And uh, Wayne says, well, actually, ultimately, this will have a good end. <laughs> interns, huh? What do you... <laughs> it's like, oh yeah. <laughs> I forgot that. Ultimately, it has a really good end. Right? Amen. Jesus reigns. Uh, ultimately, we win forever. Uh, we're already more than conquerors in Him. And so we don't have to be afraid. But we do need to live in, um, in ways that are, is, is going to astonish people. I read an astonishing uh, heard an astonishing story this week uh, that I just think captures the, what the gospel frees us to do. Here's the story. <clears throat> a man writes, and I thank God that he gave me the love to adopt as my son the enemy who killed my dear boys. These were the words of Korean pastor Yangwon Sung, the year was 1948. The place was uh, the town of Soon Chun near the 38th parallel. A band of communists had taken control of the town for a, period, a brief period and had executed Pastor Song's two older boys, Matthew and John. They died as martyrs, calling on their persecutors to have faith in Jesus. When the communists were driven out, Chai Soon, a young man of the village, was identified as the one who fired the murderous shots. His execution was ordered. Pastor Song requested that the charges be dropped and that Chai Soon be released into his custody for adoption. Rachel, the 13-year-old sister of the murdered boys, testified to support her father's incredible request. Only then did the court agree to release Chai Soon. He became the son of the pastor and a believer in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's not a, just an illustration. That actually happened. So just imagine that, some godless anarchist, young thug, casually murders your two sons, though they're innocent of any crime. And just about, just when he's going to get exactly what he deserves, you decide, as the father of the murdered boys, to adopt him into your family. 
I'm a pastor. I have boys. I can easily imagine something like this happening to them. It is, it is hard for me to imagine doing something like that. So what would possess a guy to make you not just willing but desiring to do this? And the, and the only possible thing you see is the gospel. Because you see, the gospel reminds us that God has done precisely this thing for every one of us. We were the criminals. We were the godless anarchists who put the father's son to death, though he had done nothing wrong. And when we were ripe for judgment, ready to get exactly what we deserve, God stepped forward and loved us and gave us the blood of that son to us and adopted us into his family. We are Chai Soon. And so this is why, you see, John, the, the one who loved Jesus so much, says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the children of God. John understood what happened at the cross. The unbelievable, astonishing nature of what happened at the cross as God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, the ones who were putting him to death. John got it. The question is, do we? Do we get the gospel? Because you see, the gospel is the one thing, the only thing in all the world that will give us the ability to live as free people, will give us the ability to have faith and joy and peace as things come crashing down around us. Because we have the confidence that we have been loved with an everlasting love. And therefore, for the Lord's sake, we will follow him. We will trust him in the absolute conviction that we are already more than conquerors and one day we are going to see him and we're going to reign with him and nothing can separate us from that love. And so, friends, as we move forward in a in a world where people are going to be increasingly frightened, we've got a call to stand as people who subjected ourselves to Jesus Christ, convinced convinced of his love, and willing to be good citizens for the glory of God. May God grant it. Amen. God in heaven, some of us, Lord, um, we just need to repent of our fear as we see... Um, things happening in our country that we never would have expected. Lord, some of us have to uh, confess idolatry. We had confused the kingdom of God with this nation. Lord, some of us are afraid for what we could lose in the days to come. Freedoms, possessions, loved ones, And yet, Lord, we thank you that you give us the reminder that the gospel is true, and therefore we are free. We're free from fear. We're free from judgment and threats. We can honor even wicked men because we know that they are there by the hand and the hand of God to do God's will, and God will judge. And we're called to live for the Lord's sake.
Father, I pray that we would take this to heart and that we would be known as people who delight in the ways of God, not just in our personal morality, but in our public humility. That there would be a peace about us, a confidence, an expectation, and a humility that makes the world ask questions about the hope that is within us. We thank you that Jesus Christ reigns. We thank you that we are citizens of a kingdom that cannot be shaken and that one day we're going to see it in all of its glory. May that day come soon. Amen.